This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, listeners, and salut, Babette. Andy's away today, so a cheerio to him, but Michael from 3CR has stepped in to do the panel, and I'm very grateful to him. My name's Vivian Langford. Tonight's show is about the Transition Film Festival, which director Daniel Simon says is about game changers. We will talk to filmmakers Eliza Muirhead and Tim Waters about their film, Operation Gidara, which takes us to a pristine, wild place. Beneath the Great Australian Bight, an Amazon forest of kelp is quietly drawing down carbon. Should we let the Norwegians drill for oil there? It's up to us. Our third story will take us to India. Mark and Cathy Delaney were middle-class Australians who embraced a life of voluntary simplicity by living side by side with slum dwellers and bringing up their two children there. We will talk to Mark about low carbon and loving it. It's a book that's perfect for discussion groups and if enough people contact me, I'll start a pop-up book club over four weeks in April. You can contact me at radioteam at bze.org.au. Now let's talk about Operation Jidara. Hello, um, Eliza, are you there? Hi, Vivian. Yes, myself and Tim are here. Thanks for having us. Oh, good. Well, it's lucky listeners that we've got both directors of this film called Operation Jidara, Eliza and Tim. They filmed in the Great Australian Bight and the film features Bob Brown, I think, and the Sea Shepherd crew. The name Jidara is a mourning people name for the great white whale, I believe. And I would like to start with their point of view. Uh, Can you tell me, Eliza, why do they feel so protective of this land? Um, well, Operation Jadara kicked off really when um, Bana, who's a mourning elder from that Nullarbor region, um, invited uh, the Wilderness Society, the Bob Brown Foundation, Sea Shepherd and a number of other groups that formed the Great Australian Bite Alliance um, to come and protect this land. I mean, I definitely can't speak on behalf of them and why they want it protected, but in my experience being on the ship with Bunner, he told the most amazing stories about this place, um, the dreaming, how it was formed. And, you know, this is a place that goes back to possibly um, the world's oldest living culture. So it's a very special place that 
that they weren't protected. Well, most of us haven't been there. I think the early colonialists would know that coastline better because the sea, sh- the sailing ships used to come around there and get quite frequently wrecked. But what was it like for you sailing along that coast? Yeah, I think when we had the plan um, drawn up for the operation, um, it was, you know, we'll go to Pearson Island for six hours, we'll go to Noit's Reef and film for a few hours. Um, and we took one look at the plan and thought, well, this is all very weather dependent because, um, as people know, the Great Australian Bite is Australia has that big kind of chunk taken out the bottom of it because it's just been slammed by weather all of the time. So we were actually incredibly lucky with the weather that we got mm. um, while we were at sea. We actually got beautiful, calm days, but... Yeah, it can be pretty wild down there. Mm. Well, perhaps Tim can tell me. Now, let's move to what the threat is. You know, with oil drilling there, I think people may have forgotten just how bad an oil spill is. And the oil companies say they're drilling safely off Victoria, Western Australia, Northern Territory. So why is it more risky down there? They say it's not. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, you have to keep in mind uh, the company that was closest to, um, to sort of getting the permit to drill there. In fact, we're in the final stages and had already invested hundreds of millions of dollars in the project was BP. So a reference point for us and indeed part of what brought about some of the you know, largest components of concern was that it was BP who, you know, not so many years ago had the, you know, the huge oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico that they could that they said everything was safe and that would never happen, but of course it did. And then they all sat around scratching their heads saying, now how do we stop this thing? And you have to keep in mind in the Gulf of Mexico, that's a, that's an area where there's thousands of oil rigs already there operating. It's in dead flat seas. It's an area where they have everything on standby in case there is a spill. And yet the spill in the Gulf of Mexico occurred and they couldn't do anything about it for, for way too long. In the Great Australian Bight, they were going to be um, attempting to do the, the the deepest offshore oil drilling operation ever attempted. Um, the seas in the Great Australian Bight can get up to 20 metres. And, of course, aside from that, of course, that's concerning enough. But um, the biggest concern is that it hasn't been done there before and, and there's just no infrastructure and no history around to be able to um, cope if there, if there was a spill. And, you know, odds were that, that there would be a spill and, and, you know, the same thing. We'd all be scratching our heads saying, well, what do we do now? We, we thought this wouldn't happen, but what do we do now? Mm. And it looks a pretty desolate place with probably not many people live there, living there. Um, but, you know, the destruction of an oil spill there would affect a lot of people, wouldn't it? I mean, fishing people and tourism operators and plus people in the towns. Yeah, not only not only the people locally. I mean, so there's a, there's there's a lot of offshore islands that are just incredible. I've I've filmed in the Galapagos before, which is famous for its scattered islands and the ecosystems and life on them. And you know, we saw similar things going to some of these areas, you know, south of the Great Australian Bight, south of the Nullarbor. It's incredible there. So there's not people living there at all, but there's a huge amount of unique and um, important wildlife that lives there. But if you see in the film, we have this animation that the first time I saw was just shocking where the Wilderness Society, they got some independent, um, an independent company to draw up a projected oil spill based on sort of pretty, um, pretty low numbers. 
and you know we what we would have ended up seeing was oil all over um, you know on the Tasmanian coastline, even spreading up at some points to sort of southern New South Wales if there was like a large spill. Um, so everyone would be affected, especially places like Kangaroo Island, Adelaide, Sejuna, all these places along the coast for a lot of business. So whilst you had BP saying this is going to provide jobs, if there was a spill, it wouldn't only destroy a huge amount of jobs, it would destroy whole livelihoods and communities. So that was another big threat if there was a spill. Well, you know, this is uh, this film, your Operation Jidar, is showing at the Transition Film Festival, and I think films are the one of the best ways of getting people engaged because so much of what is in danger, like especially the climate, the stratosphere, the biosphere, those aren't really visible things. You have to get some local example of it. And one of the best battles, I think, against this sort of thing in Australia was the Great Barrier Reef, where apparently there were oil drilling licences in the 60s over about 80% of the Barrier Reef incredible as it may seem and people had uh, they were aided the the conservationists who were against it they were aided by a big oil spill um called the tory canyon somewhere off the coast of britain and suddenly on their tvs they were seeing all these birds covered in oil and suddenly people understood locally what that would mean on the great barrier reef and then the union the uh, a couple of unions got together and just black banned ships with oil going through that great barrier reef See, so I mean, these battles can be won as long as you make it visual. I think you know the visualization is what dramatizes it for people. Is that what you? Mm. Yeah, well, I I completely agree, Vivian. I mean, that's the challenge as a filmmaker to one tell a compelling, interesting story, and secondly, to use beautiful photos. Sorry, beautiful pictures. I actually did some work with Sea Shepherd in the Gulf of Mexico, um, looking at the toxicity levels of the sperm whales that live there after BP's spill. And when I went there, I expected to see a pretty desolate place, um, void of life. And I got there and I saw, you know, at the time, one of the most amazing ecosystems I've ever seen, with literally full of life, um, full of different species. But it was what was under the water and what was still in the water that you couldn't see, the toxins that were building up within the ecosystem, that was really troubling. Um, so a lot of these issues, these environmental issues that we're making these films and stories about, it, yeah, it's about visualising that. And I think the biggest, one of our big aims with this film was to really just show people the Great Australian Bite, to show people what was there, not only those you know, beautiful, big, towering cliffs, but then beyond that in the water and beyond that the under the water, the Australian sea lions and um, the speckled little offshore islands that were full of life as well. So a lot of our aim was just capturing that. Um, if you Google Great Australian Bite or Pearson Island, you don't get magnificent photos because you need government permits to even go there. Um, and to get there is, is a hard trek as well. Mm. So... Um, yeah, just getting those images um, out there was a big part of what we were trying to do. Well, I haven't seen your film yet, but what images really shaped your filming or stay with you, you know, um, that listeners might attract them to go and see the film at the Nova? Well, we were one of the first projects that we actually filmed, the first documentary film to Sea Shepherd in Australia was um, up in James Price Point in, um, near Broome when um, Woodside was going to build the world's largest... Um, gas processing plant 
And we went there because it was home to the world's largest humpback whale nursery. And we went there and focused on the humpback whales and their calves that were there, the same whales that Sea Shepherd is known for protecting in Antarctica. So one of the first things that I knew about going to the Great Australian Bight was that it's actually one of the world's largest um, southern right whale nurseries. Um, and it's I didn't know much about that. And, and, and like you said, you, you haven't been there and a lot of people haven't been there, but you can go to the Nullarbor, which is a... How many hours' drive is it from Adelaide? Maybe six-hour drive or something. It's a decent drive. But when you do get there, you can stand on these cliffs when you're there at the right time, and you can look down, and from left to right you'll see hundreds of mother and calf southern right whales. Mm. So that's an incredible thing that you can see in real life. And we were lucky enough to spend a few days there on land filming with Bunner because those Nullarbor cliffs are actually the traditional lands of the Murning. So that was a very special place for him. So if you love whales, there's some amazing whale footage in there and you also get to learn about this amazing whale area that I think if it was closer to a main city, it would be one of Australia's major tourism sort of attraction points. But... What we also learned about was the um, Australian sea lions, which I'd seen before, but I wasn't aware that they were endangered. But the Great Australian Bite is one of the last strongholds for them. And if there was a, um oil spill in that area, which even though BP isn't have pulled the pin on their plans, the latest threat, as you said at the beginning of your program, is fat oil, a Danish gas company that are applying for the same oil company, sorry, that are applying for the same area. So the threats for everything that you see in the film, even though the focus was on BP, um, the threats are still there for all of these animals, for all of the people who rely on that ocean and the coastline for their form of living. And just for the environment itself, I think it would go down as Australia as mo- most definitely Australia's largest environmental disaster if there was an oil spill oh, there. Yeah. Well, I think, by the way, that oil is Norwegian, isn't it? Sorry, yes. Yeah, yeah. but I I remember talking to a Greenpeace person about the Great Australian Bite and I sort of innocently said to him, he was telling me how even drilling would affect whales' sound patterns, you know, like it would disturb them even if you didn't have an oil spill, just this sort of drilling and the sonic disturbance would, would put a lot of animals off. But then I said to him, well, there's nothing much else there, is there, between the Great Australian Bight and Antarctica. And he practically jumped out of his seat. He said, there's an enormous kelp forest there under the ocean. It's as big as the Amazon of kelp. And our listeners will know that kelp is a great way of drawing down carbon. So this is a natural forest drawing down carbon quietly there. And so climate action is very much on our mind. And I wondered... The people that you spoke to, um, you know, especially the people on the shore who were worried about tourism and fishing being disturbed and the people on the Sea Shepherd, were many of them sort of motivated by climate action? Were they aware of the climate impact of disturbing this area? Peter Owen, who's the um, head of the Wilderness Society South Australia, um, himself, Bob Brown from the Bob Brown Foundation and Jeff Hansen from Sea Shepherd Australia, they were sort of the leaders of the campaign along with Bunner. Um, who was the Murning elder. Peter Owen is a living legend, and I, I'd met him a couple of times but hadn't worked with him closely. He's, he will go down the history books as one of Australia's leading climate sort of activists, I'm sure, and he's been working in this area for, for over a decade, and he's hugely responsible for a lot of this area getting protected, and, and his main drive, I'd say, is sort of climate, um, climate-based issues. So... Um, 
yeah, he's an expert on that, and he does speak on that in the film. But, yeah, it's a really, really important area, and it's interesting for anyone who is interested in that to to look up the protected areas that are in the Great Australian Bight. Many of these protected areas are, are exactly where the drilling would occur, um, oddly enough. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's a really important area just in it's just yeah. in every single way. Okay, thank you very much. Now, we have to go to the next interview, but I'll tell the details to our listeners about Op- Operation Jidara, your film, at the end of the show. So thanks very much, Eliza and Tim, for coming on, and good luck with your um, showing at the NOVA. Thanks Thank for having you, Vivian. Bye-bye. Okay, after a break, we're going to talk to Daniel Simons. He's the uh, person who directed the Transition Film Festival, and um, we'll talk to him about all the other films that are of interest to climate activists. Why do you reckon people should subscribe to 3CR? Because I think we have more awesome music shows than anywhere else. And they're niche and they're interesting and they're adventurous. Race here, the perfect companion in your car on your road trip. If you're on digital, mm. no tram interference. Mm. But if you're streaming, there's no tram interference. No. That's true. But if you like That's tram, correct. interference is always the AM. The AM, old school. <laughs> oh, who oh. Like, you know, some people like the crack along vinyl. Well, yeah, some, some people like noise music. Experimental mm-hmm, noise music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> To subscribe to 3CR, unwaged is $35. Yes. yes. Waged? 75 And solidarity? 150 $150. That's pretty reasonable to help keep 3CR on air. Call 3CR 94198377 and... Subscribe. Subscribe today. Subscribe now. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emission Show. Daniel Simons is the National Director of Transition Films and it opens this week at the Nova Cinema. Welcome, Daniel. How are you? I'm good. Good to be here. How are you? (laughs) Very good. Look, what are you looking for when you choose the films for this festival? Well, we're really looking for films that are going to inspire people to make a a positive impact and then within that we try and get a a diverse range of films, uh, films to do with climate change, social innovation, uh, social justice, gender rights. And it's all about all of those themes working together to create the world that we want. Mm. Well, some of the films are on unbearable subjects like the horrific impact we are having on animals. And I interviewed one of the um, directors of the last film you have in the festival called Albatross, and I interviewed him a few years ago when he was still mulling over the tragedy of how plastic is poisoning the whole web of life in the ocean, and he had footage which he showed me of animal dead albatrosses on this um, Midway Island opened up, and they were just full of bottle tops and bits of plastic it was just terrible they just starved having eaten all that stuff and uh, he was struggling with it I could see he said oh this film will be out this year but it wasn't out this year it was out this is like two years later he's now made the film and I think because it's so unbearable to, to find the right images and to give the right message and I wonder how you think artistry overcomes this feeling of I just don't want to know about it yeah, definitely. So that film, Albatross, I think it was actually eight years in the making, so he was really living with that for a long time. 
and we've been chasing it. I think what you're talking about was 2014 when he was here to give the keynote at SLF, um, and everybody was just really struck by that short film, and we've been chasing the feature ever since. And um, I think you, that's the point is when you come to a cinema, you sort of sit with it and you have to really confront it. You can't you know, open up a new browser or change the channel. And I think it's just what he's done is really poetic and beautiful and powerful. And if you don't want to solve the problem after watching it, then uh, I think there might be something wrong with you. <laughs> well, I want to see it because I was so impressed by him and his poetic sort of way of um, putting images one against the other and the music he used. It was just really, I was really, I, I am looking forward to that. Yeah, but you've... It's a re- really beautiful film and we've yeah. actually got Giselle Wilkins um, saying a few words before the film and she's the founder of the Sustainable Living Foundation. Oh, good. And she actually lived with him for, for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Well, you've written that we must maintain our moral compass and I'd like to know which of your game changers has helped you with that. Oh, yeah, there's, there's so many in mm-hmm. here. So definitely Ronnie Khan, who's the CEO and the founder of Oz Harvest. Her story is amazing and really inspiring and empowering. She's actually fighting the good fight and winning. Um, we've got a climate guardian angel on the panel of Guardians of the Earth, Deborah Hart. So some of the work they were doing in Paris has been really inspiring. Unfractured is the story of, of you know David and Goliath's battle to stop fracking in New York. It's just really... Every film has uh, just a great story of people going up against the system and, and winning. Mm. Well, I, I'm glad that you've mentioned the panel groups. Are all the films going to have a and a afterwards or just some of them? Uh, just some of them, yeah. yeah. So there's 30 films altogether, so there's uh, quite, quite a few. Most of the 6.30 sessions have panels and then the, the following sessions will have introductions. Okay, well, listeners, I do suggest you go there and go early so you can sit down the front and ask questions because you will have experts, people who have probably put their lives into some of these, um, what would you say, campaigns. Um, I'm going to miss the Guardians of the Earth because I'll be back in Sydney, but listeners will remember how the Climate Guardians dressed up like angels turned up at the 2015 Paris conference. What can we learn from this film? I think one of the really interesting things about the film is just, you know, seeing the humanity of, of the diplomats. It's really an up-close-and-personal look at, at the individuals that were negotiating the agreement, and it's also just really interesting to see how the whole agreement comes together. There were over 20,000 people in the, trying to negotiate a deal, and that sort of explains why it, was, why it was so difficult, why it was so complicated. And then I think the important thing is to link that with the panel discussion to to what can we do now and what happens next, because a lot of people know that the the climate deal was a good start, but it's not enough to get to where we need to be. Mm. I think the the angels uh, had some of the guardians, they had a different effect. Again, it's come back to this artistry. I remember when one of the people up in the coal seam gas affected area took his own life, and we had a little vigil in Melbourne and that they came and it was as if they were real angels. I mean, people were actually talking to them and hugging them as if they were real angels, even though we know they were only acting, but it was like it was a necessary component in that, the sadness of that. And I, I feel that somehow there's an inter- in the films we're going to see people a bit like more creative people and divergent sort of people who also have a role to play. 
Is that, is that yeah, your, your deck? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's really powerful. And uh, I've walked next to some of the climate angels in, in protests before, and it just you know raises the engagement to another level, and I think mm. it's it's really great what they're doing. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Ronnie Khan, and her film is called Food Fighter, and I know that food waste and alternative foods are front of mind for many of us. We had at the festival um, Paul Hawken talking about his top 100 solutions to draw down carbon and one of them was to stop wasting food to just not grow excess and not buy, have excess for sale and certainly not to waste it. And Ronnie Cunz had a really creative and she's mobilised lots of people um, in her shops and in her um, food distribution with um, Oz Harvest. So that plus alternative foods through um, this film there called The Gateway Bug. Can you tell us what's, what are your thoughts about food as a part of climate action? Yeah, exactly. So food waste is obviously a, a massive issue. There's uh, one of the figures from the movie says $20 billion worth of food waste in Australia. There's uh, on average 35% of the bin is full of food waste. And all of that, when it goes to landfill, leads to methane, which creates uh, climate change. So it's a, it's a massive problem. On the flip side, with the gateway bug, there's two things. There's one is, you know, meat production creates a lot of greenhouse gases. Um, but on the on the other side of that, there's also we're running out of food because climate change is, is making it harder to raise uh, animals. So insects are, are a potential solution to food insecurity and to climate change. Okay, well... I believe that the political change we need is underpinned by cultural change and our next speaker is going to be talking about how to mobilise, you know, most of us into a kind of cultural change. But films help us imagine things such as a world beyond work where people are liberated to do the restoration of broken systems that we face. Like I I would love to see um, something like in the Depression era um, dust bowl of America where they planted 98 million trees and they mobilised all these young people who who Eleanor Roosevelt said were the lost generation and they gave them training and they worked. Now, I would love to see some massive project like that, but maybe that's old-fashioned, maybe that's not the way it goes. But Well, in, in China they just announced 60,000 people to start planting trees to combat the, uh, oh, the well, smog over go. there, so maybe we can do it here. Yeah, there you go. It's, it's, it's inspiring and it gives people confidence that they're sort of fighting back. I wonder, you know, when, when you, you talk to people after the film festival or in the lead-up to it, what feedback back do you get about the films you've curated you know what what do people do people say it, it's affected their life how they live yeah definitely so they're all different films people are influenced in different ways but one of the questions that we have in the exit survey is you know did you change your career as a result or would you, will you change what you will do in the future and we were really surprised we had quite a lot of people saying yes so especially last year we screened a film called a plastic ocean Oh, and yeah. I think that really motivated people not not just to change their behaviours but to change, you know, what they did with their with their life. So that's uh, I think really exciting. That's right. And and uh, there was the on TV. You know, once it gets to the TV level, we had the war on waste on the ABC. A lot of people talked to me about that. And I wonder if how how many of these films, which I can see in the transition film festival, will, will many of them do you think get onto TV or into the mainstream? Uh, probably a lot of them won't, but some of them definitely will. So I guess we just um, we need more people to come to show that there's the demand and then they're more likely to get picked up.
Yeah, okay. Well, it's a very popular festival, so I hope listeners will take in now the dates. Can you tell us the dates of the whole festival, the oh, venue, yes, and also about uh, showings in other states? So in Melbourne, it's this Thursday, February 22, until March 9 at Cinema Nova, and then touring to Sydney, Brisbane, Perth and Adelaide later in March. Okay, thank you very much, Daniel. So, listeners, turn up at the Transition Film Festival at the Nova, but don't leave it till you turn up to buy your tickets. Get the tickets beforehand online. So thank you very much, Daniel. We've and been you can t- book, book at www.transitionfilmfestival.com. Okay, thank you very much. So now, listeners, we're going to change the tone and we're going to India for the next interview, but I would like to have a little bit of music first to change the tone. This is what we must always remember. Climate change is not just about things getting hotter and wetter, though it's about that too. It's also about things getting meaner and uglier unless we change these corrosive values at the center of this economic and political system that pits us against one another. Because we have dangerously warmed our world already, and our governments still refuse take the actions necessary to halt this trend. There was a time when most of us could have claimed ignorance, but for the past three decades, ever since the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was formed, ever since our governments started needing to negotiate emission reductions, we have lost all plausible deniability. This has been done with the full awareness of the dangers. This is an emergency. Not a future emergency, a present emergency. A five-alarm fire. This is an emergency. Not a future emergency, a present emergency. A five-alarm fire. The point is that this kind of recklessness would have been functionally impossible without institutionalized racism, however latent, without Orientalism, without all the potent tools on offer that allow the powerful to discount the lives of the less powerful. These tools are what allow for the writing off of entire nations and ancient cultures. Well, that was heavy, wasn't it? Um, Thank you, Michael. So now we're going to talk to Mark Delaney. He and his son, Tom, want us to slim down our carbon impact from 23 tonnes each per year to something closer to two. The Sydney Morning Herald writer in 2008 called Mark and Tom and their family the Australians who live on a slumdog millionaire's robe. But Mark is with us on the phone from Brisbane where he's just launched a very useful book called Low Carbon Living and Loving It. How are you, Mark? I'm doing well, thanks, Vivian. Thanks for calling. Well, I don't think you became millionaires living in the slums, but you have gained something more precious than money. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's exactly right. We certainly haven't become millionaires, but we really have gained a lot. And I think one of the, the best things we've gained is a, a, a new appreciation for what are the important things in life. Now, I think um, in the West, especially in Australia, we, we kind of have been sold this lie that, uh, you know, if you buy this new thing, you, you'll be happy and content. But I think what we've learned from living in the slums in India is that that's not true. It's mainly about relationships and uh, friendships and, uh, and nature and appreciating those things in life. 
Well, in your first year when you and your wife went there, Indian social activists said that you'd be very welcome to stay if you were prepared to do three things. Learn Hindi so you could talk to people outside the middle class, stay for the long term and work with Indians rather than trying to be the boss like on Indian projects. And they didn't say anything about living in one room without a fridge or air conditioner and bringing <laughs> up two children. So why did yes. you do that? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And in fact, uh, most of those uh, Indian friends that we asked uh, that advice, they, they actually said, well, we would not advise living in a slum. Um, but we wanted to do it anyway. And I guess the, the basis was this, that when you want to help anybody, um, you know, be the... Uh, a single mom or someone with a you know, drug addiction or, or whatever, the first thing to do, we think, is to understand what life is like for that person. And there's no better way to understand what life is like for a person than to actually live in their neighbourhood, you know, to move in and to experience life as they experience it. So that was the theory, and uh, that's what we did. And, uh, you know, we, we weren't sure whether it would work, but uh, it did, and uh, so we stayed for 20 years. Well, you said in the book that your wife was a bit more adventurous than you. Well, yes. Why did she push it so much? Oh, I, I suppose my wife, Kath, is uh, kind of an idealist, and, uh, and and she's probably just less fearful than I am. I'm actually quite a fearful personality type, so when we were living fairly simply and, and Kathy was saying, let's move down you know, into our actual slum, you know, I was thinking about all the things that could go wrong with the, you know, the health of our baby and the police being suspicious, but... Kathy, um, yeah, Kathy's a courageous person, and uh, that's one of the things I love about being married to her. Is she pushes me on those things. Yeah. Well, look, many of your Indian neighbours may not have heard about climate change because it's a bit too boring a story for TV, but the farmers know that the monsoon is bringing less rain, and there are huge spikes in food prices sometimes that would be noticeable in the market. When you came back here, why were you so alarmed to see how laid-back Australians were and found us so unconcerned about climate change that we are causing? Do you think our media is to blame? Your book has quite a lot to say about media and cultural things like advertising. What, 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 do you think they are strongly to blame? Uh, we do, Vivian, we do. We, we think there's a number of factors at play uh, in why, uh, generally speaking, Australians just haven't come to terms with this. Uh, enormous problem. We think, you know, the biggest problem of our generation. But but certainly one of the major factors is the media. Uh, and that's because the media works hand in glove with uh, industry. And that the whole, uh, in the, the whole you know, capitalist economy is built on selling more and more things. And if we are to take climate change seriously, one of the things that we need to change uh, is to think more about our consumption. Because, you know, as we buy a new product, that product has to be made. It needs resources and it needs uh, carbon emissions to make it. So we need to slim down our, our consumption of products. And, of course, um, the indus uh, industry doesn't like that because it means uh, it affects profit. So I think it's a, it's a very intentional thing that uh, media, generally speaking, not all media, but, but many of the media has underplayed this, uh, this problem. Less people uh, consume less. Yeah, well, if my grandmother was alive today, I'm sure she'd think I live a life of great luxury. And I think modern-day Australians have got used to things that used to be luxuries as very commonplace. And I wonder, do you think the privilege, you know, we talk of ourselves being rich and privileged as a society. Yeah. Do you think this privilege stops us seeing what climate change is doing? And if so, do you think adopting a life of voluntary simplicity, as you did, 
is the only way to activate us? Oh, you know, I certainly wouldn't go as far as saying it's <laughs> the only way. Yep. You know, it's the way that we've found and it's worked very well for us and we think that's got tremendous advantages to it. But we wouldn't say it's, it's the only way. But, uh, yeah, I'd agree with you, Grandma, you know, that um, uh, to say that Australians have got used to a life of, uh, of uh, I would say, luxury. In, in global terms, it is a life of luxury. The difficulty is when we look around us and we see all of our neighbours with two or three cars and in three or four bedroom houses and air conditioning and all of that, we think it's normal. But in global terms, it is very, very abnormal. Um, so what's been very helpful for us is to see, to live in the developing world and see what, you know, 70, 80% of the world lives like. And, and I think that's true for many people that travel to the developing world. They come back with a new perspective, you know, and, and very, very grateful for the things that we have in Australia and, and a new appreciation. Yes. Well, I spoke to your son last week and I'm going to put his interview to air later on. Um, not today, but, you know, like in, in the future sure. month. And sure. I was impressed by him. He's only in his 20s and my children are in their 20s too. But I think... I said to him, how come you didn't sort of hanker for all these things and these gadgets? And, like, we brought up our children. We didn't ever, We never had a car. We never took yeah. great expensive holidays anywhere and tried to live sort of simply, but they were considered weird. You know, there was a lot of pressure. I remember we had our television stolen and, and yeah. um, we didn't replace it. And all my family was sort of saying to me, oh, you know, you, you're depriving the children. They need yes, a television. Yes. Anyway, yes. so your son said, oh, no, I never had any of those pressures. And I yes. think, in a way, he was lucky. Um, yes. But anyway, listeners to the Beyond Zero show are not your average, you know, person who just takes it all lying down. A lot of them will be actively protesting government policies like giving subsidies to fossil fuels, yes. new, new projects like Adani and all that, and oil yes. rigs in the Great Australian Bight, which we've just heard is on the previous yes. interview is a possibility. But shining the light back on our own heavy carbon footprint, you know, 23 yes. tonnes per person per year, just makes us feel guilty, defensive and full of excuses. In my experience, when I talk to people, that's the re yes. response I get. And you, yes. you say that we are sort of sedating ourselves with the notion that science and technology will save us and that yes. the real solution is the hard work of behavioural change. So what are the first steps of that behavioural change? Yeah, well, that's, that's a great question, Vivina, and I agree that, you know, guilt, you know, really big levels of guilt is not particularly helpful because it does just lead to inaction. So what we're advocating is to, I suppose, not look at the end goal so much of getting right down with the carbon footprint, but just to look at the next step. So one of the, as Tom says, one of the silver linings of having a carbon footprint of 23 tonnes a year is that there's a lot of places that you can reduce it relatively easily. So we're saying things like, you know, just have a look at your diet. And if you're eating meat four times a week, maybe consider eating meat just twice a week. It will make a big difference. You know, if you drive to work five days a week, maybe consider catching public transport one day a week. So we're saying, let's just look at the next step that you could take. And I think you'll be surprised that it's actually not that difficult. Uh, and then once you've taken that step, then another step might uh, might unfold before you. So it's debilitating, yes, to look at the... At, oh, 23 tonnes down to two, it feels impossible. We're saying just look at the next step and take the next step.
Tell us a few more of the steps, like about housing. You lived in a one-room uh, place and uh, and shared other facilities like toilet and bathroom yes. with the, yes. your neighbours. And uh, yes. some, all the photos of you look like you're having a ball. So. Yes. <laughs> well, it's too much of a leap, I think, for Australians to know that. It, it is. It is, of course. Um, but it's fascinating to me in that, you know, in Australia, houses have got bigger and bigger over the years. Uh, whereas the, the number of people living in each house has got smaller and smaller. You know, I think it's down to around about two, two people per house now on average. And the, the houses are huge. They're the biggest in the world. And again, that's that thing of when you look around you, you don't realise this, but when you look at the global, global statistics, Australia, 89 square metres per person. It's the biggest in the world. Um, so in other steps that we could take, let's see. So, yeah, in, in terms of housing... Uh, when you go to buy a house or when you go to rent a house, to ask the question, what would be good to live in? You know, and that's really the purpose of housing, isn't it? to say, what would be good to live in? What's good for our purposes? Rather than what's going to sell for more. And I think that's the problem with uh, you know, the housing market is people are only thinking or mainly thinking, what is it going to sell for? Therefore, we put on the deck. Therefore, we put on the pool. Therefore, we refurb the kitchen rather than what would we like to live in? You know, what would be a nice place for our family to live in? So that's, that's another step that, uh, that we could take. What about travel? You make a big effort to travel as low carbon as possible. So what mm. about that? Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. Uh, we did an interview uh, recently for the, for the book launch and uh, my friend who was interviewing me uh, said, you know, what are you doing after the launch in Brisbane? I said, well, I'm going down to Sydney for uh, five days and then on to Melbourne for five days to do some uh, launches down there. And cheekily, she said to me, how are you travelling there? <laughs> I was glad to be able to say, well, I'm taking the train. And that, that is how I travel in Australia for longer distances. I take the train. And, uh, yeah, it takes longer. But, uh, you know, I really like the travel that way because you get to uh, meet interesting people, you get to see uh, see things that you don't see when you fly, uh, you get a little bit of uh, downtime to read and think and just slow down the pace of life. So that's one of the advantages in, in travelling overland by train or bus or whatever rather than flying is that you, it just slows the pace of life down a little bit because the pace of life that we live in in Australia is incredible. It's so hectic. Well, your book is full of little boxes, so I, I really advertise this book, readers. It's called Low Carbon and Loving It, and in it are little geeky boxes. I think they might have been written by your son, but that's right. other that's ones right, yes. called myth-busting, and one of the myths yes. is if I don't take that seat on the plane, someone else will. How do you yes. respond to that, the pressure to take flights? I mean, I, get, I do the train trip from Sydney to Melbourne once every six weeks, and yes. I get a lot of pressure from people. They, they think it's weird. They think, why don't you take the plane? And, in fact, it's sometimes cheaper to take the plane. It they is, can't yes. believe it. But yes. how do you respond to people about plane flights? Well, Vivian, you know, people, when you talk about climate change, um, of course, you know, your, your listeners are very, very open and very active on these issues, but many Australians just aren't and, and become defensive immediately. So come up with all these excuses. And one of the classic ones is this one that you, you mentioned. If I don't get on that plane, the plane's going to go anyway and I don't save any carbon. But that's a, that, that's a, a fallacious argument, really. In, in pure economic terms, we all know that if enough people choose not to fly, then the airlines will take that extra flight off the schedule. So maybe your getting on the flight doesn't do that, but if you and 15 other people make the same decision, pretty soon the flight schedule will change. 
So it's this argument about, you know, my little action won't do anything. Well, maybe that's strictly true, but your little action coupled with many other people taking little action does make a difference. And that's what we're arguing in the book, is that if enough of us take these little steps, then the business leaders and the politicians start sitting up and taking notice and making the big policy decisions that are necessary. Yeah. Well, I tried to put a bit of pressure on the ship that goes to Tasmania because I went over there by boat and I I couldn't get anyone to tell me what the carbon footprint of that boat ticket was and they didn't want to tell me and I wondered if, in fact, travelling by that sort of ship is more carbon intensive than the flight. But I think there needs (laughs) to be a consciousness on tickets and on... I've, I've... Yes. flirted with the idea of carbon allowances, you know, like carbon yes, rationing, yes. so people would have a label on everything. This is this is so much carbon footprint. Because I don't sure. think the concept is even really current anymore. People don't think of carbon footprint very much. And they talk about offsets, but that's kind of a dead idea too. Nobody really likes that idea. What do you think about yes. offsets? Well, we think, you know, offsets is normally talked about you know, with respect to your travel. You know, if you're, you're flying, then... Sometimes you're invited to offset your flights, but you know there's there's really no reason why we should be offsetting our travel, but not our consumption or not our housing or not our diet. You know they all have a carbon footprint attached, and therefore could really all be offset. Um, so I, I I'm not uh, unhappy about offsetting flights and so forth if it births a consciousness in people that oh. The way that I live does have a carbon footprint. So I agree with you. It would be, be a very sensible policy decision from the government to have a label on every product, just like it's got an energy efficiency label on your washing machine or whatever. Have a label on every product to say, this is the amount of carbon it took to make this product so that people become aware of it. Because at the moment, you know, you know, people aren't talking about it and people just aren't aware of it. Well, your book is a very handy book. I would advise any teacher with a sort of high school class who wants a non-fiction book, like a practical sort of book to use as a discussion um, springboard, I would say this book is good because you've got questions at the end of the chapter, but you have things like uh, carbon footprint hotspot identifier so people can identify which parts of their life are hotspots for carbon. And then you've got like little um, characters, um, Mm. you know, Mm. personalities, you just invented them and comparing their lifestyle. And you don't advise people to have the most radical, like you can't go from 23 tons per person in Australia to two suddenly, but in Europe they've got a, a, a carbon footprint of eight. So, you know, we, we, we need to aspire to go lower. And um, I think this book is really excellent. Did you intend it for that sort of thing, for discussion groups? And We did, yeah, yeah, very, very much, Vivian, because it's, uh, to have anybody change the way they live, you or me or anybody else, it's actually a very difficult thing. And the older you get, the more difficult it is to change because we get set in our way. But one of the things that helps us to change uh, is discussion and talking about it with our friends and family and seeing other people carry out those changes. You know, if you just have the idea in your own head and you just read the book, uh, it often doesn't uh, change things in our lives. But if we read it and then we talk about it, and together as a group or as a family, we say, okay, in the next week, let's try this. You know, let's uh, not eat meat on that night or let's all travel by public transport on that day. If we talk about it with our friends and we have a sense of accountability, then change can come. So, yeah, that's why we've got the reflection questions in the book, to be designed to 
to be read as a group and, and talked about as a group. Okay. Look, many people point at population growth, mm. um, especially in poor countries. I've been to so many climate action meetings over the years and there's always someone mm. who puts the thing, what about the population in India? Mm. And mm. it's rather rude. You know, it's, it's as if it, that will be the last nail in the coffin of the 21st century. But I think yeah. the growth of the middle class is more of a global problem. And yeah. Australia, for example, we do a lot about land use and I think that we are flogging lots of our land, especially in the northern part of Australia, to export beef for the growing yeah. middle class um, market of yeah. uh, people yeah. who previously didn't eat meat very much but now have, yeah. will want to. Um, so Asian countries are polluting their skies to export white goods to us and uh, we're flogging our beef to feed them and populations will stabilise, I think. I don't think the population is a problem. I think, as Paul Hawkins said, look, women's education is the key to it once they're educated. But what sort of education will stabilise the climate? Yes, it's a very good question. And uh, on, that, on that population one, you know, it's another one of the, the excuses that people pull out. You know, they're, they're defence mechanisms. When we don't want to change, we pull out an excuse about why it's somebody else's fault. And that's one of the chapters in the book that we examine of, uh, you know, the great human propensity to blame somebody else when, when there's a problem. But, um, yeah, how to educate people about the climate? Well, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, I think that the, one of the best things that's worked for us is to personally meet people who are affected. Now, so if you... Um, I'll give you another example. So friends of ours in Brisbane... Uh, were interested in uh, refugee action work. So they went to the refugee detention centre in Pinkenbar uh, in Brisbane and met some refugees who were in detention. That changed everything for them because now, all of a sudden, these are not just statistics. These are real people with real names and real kids and real stories. It changes people. That's what changed us, going to India and meeting the poor. They weren't statistics anymore. They were our friends. So I think... um, what, what can really change things for people are things like, um, you know, sometimes uh, going to, let's say, a, a Pacific island and hearing stories of people who are losing their, losing their land or talking to uh, farmers who can no longer plant their rice reliably because the, the monsoon hasn't come on time. So that's one of the most powerful things, I think, is if we can talk to people who are affected by these things. The second thing I'd say is that um, we've, we've got to uh, inform ourselves with a reliable and more objective media. By and large, the media in Australia is very biased, very pro-consumption, very pro-carbon. We've got to uh, get more independent media where we can actually get the real story. Mm. And I, I thought another thing with your son, he said he'd been homeschooled and then used distance education from Australia for his high school. He was very well informed about everything. He said he read The Guardian, he read a few <laughs> you know, choice websites. And I thought, gosh, that's in a way it's been very liberating for you to, to sort through all the dross, isn't it? That you haven't had the dross, so you, you go straight to the Well, that's exactly right, Vivian. And, and um, you know, so... It's funny, when we, Kathy and I, my wife and I moved to India back in the, in the 90s, we, we thought, I thought, we'll just endure this silliness, you know, this silly, radical kind of lifestyle for a few years, and then we'll go back to normality. Normality meaning get a deposit, get a house, and so forth. But after we'd been here about 10 years, we looked at it and we thought, this life is, is wonderful to have raised our kids outside of that system that's driving them just to want more and more stuff. 
um, our kids were thriving. They were, they were having a great time. We were, we were having fantastic times as a family, and our kids have, have grown up beautifully, you know, without all of that stuff. So we came to see it as, actually, this is, this is a wonderful opportunity that we've got to step outside of that system. Well, thank you very much for writing your book. You say all through that you're quite a pessimist but and an introvert, <laughs> but you've really written a, a very easy to read and full of stories and it, it glows with all the people you know. You give the story of Carlu, you give lots of stories of people you've known. Maybe you've helped them, but maybe they've also helped you. So it's it's that sort of book that makes you feel, oh, this is a different world and uh, very hopeful. So thank you. Well, for what we writing. wanted to do. What we wanted to do, Vivian, was, you know, we knew just writing about climate change was going to be too dry for most people. So we've tried to weave our personal stories um, of living in the slums and the through the book. So we, we think it's an interesting read and we hope people enjoy it. There's just got some humorous parts in it and, um, and learn about climate change as well. So, yeah, thanks very much, Vivian. I appreciate that. And thank you. So we've been talking to Mark Delaney and his book is called Low Carbon and Loving It. Thank you to our guests tonight, Daniel Simons, Eliza Muirhead, Tim Waters and Mark Delaney. Thanks also to the team tonight, Michael especially, and um, uh, Roger and Andy will do the podcast. The Transition Film Festival that we heard at the beginning of the program is at the Cinema Nova in Carlton from Thursday this week, 22nd of February till 9th of March on the closing night, will be Albatross. If you want to see Operation Jidara about defending the Great Australian Bite, with Bob Brown as the narrator and all this beautiful scenery of those islands I'd never even heard of down there, you can book tickets um, for Saturday the 3rd of March at 4.30pm, but book before that date because I think they'll sell out. Mark Delaney's book, Low Carbon and Loving It, is available online as an e-book. I think it's about $10 and it's for sale through Amazon. If you would like to be part of a pop-up book club over four weeks in April, just send me an email. That's to Vivian. Um, and the email address is radioteam at bze.org.au or you could ring up 3CR uh, if you can't take down that name radio team at bze.org because I would like to have one of those discussion groups over four weeks and we could just read this book together and it's not like Q&A where you can't get a word in edgeways you will have time to discuss low carbing living as uh, Mark and Tom Delaney have described it and if you are tired of all those you know sessions you go to where you can't really explore your ideas in a safe place this would be a really good chance for you to do it if enough people contact me i'm happy to run that group in april so the address is radio team at bze.org.au if you just want everyone to be nice this is a quote i found on facebook which i don't usually look at but this is kind of harsh but i think it's true if you just want everyone to be nice please know that people are literally fighting for their lives and safety you might not see it but that's what privilege does. And that's why I asked Mark that question about privilege. I think the privilege we have living here makes us complacent. We don't get a move on. Frog boiling in water and all of that. So discussing Mark Delaney's book would give us the confidence to make changes that will lower our emissions and help others. 
You might also like to hear an interview that one of the BZE people, Michael Lord, did with John Fain on the ABC. It was about electric vehicles. If you'd like to hear that, just go to the BZE website and click on where you see a picture of John Fain. Please also ask your friends to subscribe to the BZE podcasts. They are all free and we have a huge archive of them now and I'd love it if you would just do that little action of asking your friends to subscribe. Now stay tuned to Radio 3CR. In the next half hour, you will hear me again, unfortunately. You might be getting sick of my voice by now, but it's a lot of interviews, like quite a number of interviews I did up at Bolga in New South Wales. I went on a bus tour, a Hunter Valley listening tour with some people from Lock the Gates Alliance, and we met these heroes of resistance to coal. These are some elderly people often, um, taking a stand against two coal mining companies. So this is part one of something that I'll put to air as the BZE show later in the month. It's called Bulga Battlers and it, the, the full program will go to air on the 5th of March. So thank you again, Michael. Oh, I think um, we can have a little bit of music and then stay tuned, listeners. Uh, at 6 o'clock you can hear Bulga Battlers. This has been the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. Thank you. 